0: and welcome to our event on Making College Pay with Beth Akers and distinguished guests. My name is Andrew Kelly. I'm the Senior Vice President for Strategy and Policy here at the University of North Carolina System. Many of you probably know also I'm an AEI alum, so it's uh, very gratifying to be back uh, my old stomping grounds digitally, as it were. Um, Also so glad to see um, a good friend and colleague, Beth Akers, uh, join the team at AEI. Uh, and continue her great work on higher education policy from those friendly confines. I'll be moderating today's discussion about how aspiring students and their families can make smart decisions when it comes to higher education. Beth's new book, uh, Making College Pay, explores the topic of how can we encourage students uh, and their families to make uh, strategic and 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 smart and informed decisions rather than romantic ones about college. Um, and I can say, I can tell you from from my perch here in. Uh, North Carolina. This is something we think a lot about. We want to make sure that students have full information about their choices and uh, and access to all the all kinds of data and information that they need to make to make great choices. So I was so glad to see uh, Beth jump into this uh, topic and 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 really write an accessible volume on it. Beth, when did you decide to write this? You've written a lot about student loans and and lots of wonky policy issues, and we love you for that. When did you decide to write this book, and why now?
1: You know, the truth is that I started out writing an academic book and it became this book. And it became this book because through the process of writing what was about how to reframe the problem in higher education as risk, not cost, for policymakers, I realized that the people who actually need this information more than the policymakers, more than the academics who already know it, are the people who are on the ground making decisions. The other factor driving it was that I feel like the conversation around higher ed right now, it's just so saturated with regret. We know on on average that people get huge returns from investments in higher education. You know, I've, I've cited a million times, you know, the extra million dollars over the course of your lifetime that you get from a college degree. But at an individual level, college is risky. And there's some things that you need to know in order to make a decision that will work out for you. And so that's what this book is about.
0: Well, as I said at the at the very outset, I think it's really amazing to me to hear that the genesis genesis for it was as an academic book because it really is um, written in written in plain English and, and something that that I would I would commend um, to to friends and family who are in the middle of this process now because I think it's it's a it's a digestible and understandable book that deals with some really uh, you know um, uh, complex and complicated topic. So when you look at the choices that aspiring students are currently making, which of those would you advise against?
1: Well I think that the core thing I'm advising against is being willy-nilly about this decision. So you know we're advising students to when they get to the point of thinking about going to college that they want to do things like go walk around the campus and see what feels like a good fit. I'm basically advising against that or at least advising that that aspect of it be a relatively small portion of your decision-making process If what you care about is that you end up with a good paying job that will make your investment worthwhile. And so the kind of proactive thing that people should be doing and what I recommend is shopping with data. So start backwards, right? Decide where you want to end up and then figure out what is the most efficient, cost-effective path to get there. And I think that's kind of antithetical to the way that people think about college right now, that it's kind of this springboard that you finish high school and then you you just, you know, enter onto this springboard and it will just launch you into something wonderful. And that's a a great way to approach college if you have a trust fund. But for the 90% of students who go to college and say that, their number one goal is to get a financial return, it's probably not the best path. So um, I'm really advising to just use a different framework for thinking about it, starting at the end, working backwards and doing a cost benefit analysis, right? We think of that as kind of a wonky thing, but I lay out in the book that it's really just saying, what do you expect to get and what do you expect to pay? And can you compare those things? Does that make sense, right? We do that analysis in all sorts of different decisions around consumption in our lives, you know, should we buy this car? Should we buy this yogurt or this yogurt? So I'm just teaching people that we can transfer those skills that we already have um, of using economics in our daily lives. And let's apply it to education because it's such a hugely consequential decision um, and it just can't be taken lightly.
0: You're speaking my language in many respects. I've certainly tread some of this ground with you. So this is refreshing to get a chance to come back to some of these topics. I'm sure there were some things that surprised you as you were going through this. What are some things that surprised you as you were working on the book? It's hard to surprise an economist, but I'm sure there were a couple things.
1: Well, there were two things. So the first thing that was surprising to me was that what's actually a more consequential decision than where you go to college is what you study. I probably should have known that, but yeah. when I came to looking at the data and I was digging into the research that Doug Weber has done really extensively on this subject, it became just re- really obviously clear you know, that we're putting way too much emphasis on choosing a college and not nearly enough on choosing a course of study. And again, I'm not pushing anybody to say that you have to make the decision that ma- will make you the most money in the long run, right? That's a criticism that I get a lot of times. That's not the point. The point is that a lot of people need for this to be a decision that that pays in the long run. And paying close attention to your program of study is an important one. The second thing that I found kind of surprising is I really wanted to give uh, readers a roadmap to options outside of traditional associates and bachelor's degrees. I'm familiar with all the data from the college scorecard. I've been a long time proponent of people using that, of making that better data so that We can make informed decisions. And I realized that outside of the traditional degree space, we don't have great information for consumers. So if I want to go to some sort of certificate or training program, there's no website I can tell you to go to and say, here are where all of your options are. And so that was that was surprising and disappointing to me as as an economist and as somebody who is trying to help people navigate this path.
0: That gets to some of the real nitty gritty policy issues, right, that we've got to fix in order for people to make better decisions on this front. Two last questions for you. The first is if audience members take one thing away from the book and discussion, what should it be?
1: Mm. What I'd love for people to understand is that the core challenge, both for policymakers and for individuals with spending on higher education is not the cost, but rather it's the risk. You know, I I can I can say until I'm blue in the face that college is worth it and on average it's worth it. But that doesn't get to the fact that we have a policy problem and an individual problem in this country that we rely on higher education as the core mechanism for social mobility in our economy. And yet it doesn't always work. So if we characterize the problem that way, I think we arrive at more sensible solutions.
0: That's great. Now, let me turn that question before we jump into our panel and ask if you were advising leaders of universities, how would you suggest that they respond to what they would read in your book?
1: Something I think that's really exciting is the innovation that's happening around the guarantee of outcomes. So what we're seeing is that colleges are getting into the business of offering insurance. They're saying, come to my school. I guarantee that you'll be making this much after you graduate. And if you don't, I'll help you pay back your loans. Those those policies come in all different shapes and forms and sizes. But I think they're really exciting. Um, I don't know what the future of that genre of financial products is going to look like, but I'm really excited when I see institutions getting on board with those sorts of tools. So I'd be excited if, if that's what they took away.
0: I want to take a second to invite our panelists in and open up this discussion a bit. Josh Mitchell is a reporter for The Wall Street Journal, where he covers economics and student debt, and for my money, uh, is among the best uh, people who's today writing about these issues, uh, particularly his work on student debt. Josh, it's a pleasure to be here with you again. Vince Mourinho is the executive director of BRAVEN, uh, where he supports thousands of students at Rutgers University Newark transition from college to career. Let's start out with with some questions here, particularly for Josh and Vince. Josh, when you took a look at Beth's book and and you compare it to the work that you've done, particularly on student debt, how useful do you think this book is going to be to some of those folks that you feature in your stories who tended to have uh, maybe made some suboptimal choices uh, uh, on their on their higher ed investments?
2: I think it's of great use, and I think that um, we have seen a transi- transition in public opinion over the past five or ten years. Uh, just as an example, um, we did a poll, There was, it was about five or six years ago, where we said, is college worth it? And five or six years ago, overwhelming majorities in both parties answered yes to that question. And then we asked that right before the latest election. And there was a very big shift. And so now roughly half of the overall population say yes. A lot of Republicans say no. But there's even been a downturn on the Democratic side of people saying college is worth it. So I think, you know, in some ways that's kind of sad because you have people that have turned against this institution that has been this really widely respected institution for years and years, which is college, which has always been known as like a path to the American dream. And it's kind of sad to see people who have lost faith in it. I think that the upside is, and this is where I think Beth's book comes in, is people are more aware you can't just simply take it as an article of faith that college is worth it. You can't just simply pay whatever the price is and go to whatever school you want to. And if they charge 50000 a year, you know, and not have to worry about what the return on investment is. And I think families are waking up to that. And as more information comes about, particularly with the college scorecard, families can take a look at, okay, well, what am I paying and what am I studying and what what am I going to earn when I come out of college? And so the more information we have, and I think Beth has really done a good job here of trying to show students this, the more empowered they are to not get themselves in too much debt that they won't be able
0: to repay. Thanks, Josh. I think the the shift in public opinion, you know, some of it is to Beth's earlier point, it's really starting to, in some ways, uh, price in some of that risk, right, into the way that they're thinking about whether whether college is worth it. So so Vince, I would love to hear a little bit
3: more about Braven and how does Braven relate to making college pay? Excellent, thank you so much for having me. And I will say as the father of a young child who is years away from going to college, having a tool like this to start to think about how we prepare her for college and the selection process, it's just valuable. So thank you, Beth, for this. So the work that we do at Braven really is about exactly that, which is how do students upon graduation put their degrees to work. So our work is primarily focused, our our chief goal is that our fellows who go through the Braven experience graduate into a strong first job within six months of graduation. The reason six months is an important marker is because there are a number of statistics and studies that show after the six month mark, it becomes increasingly more challenging to identify the job for your degree. And so what we do is we work, uh, we are a course, uh, students who sign up to take the Braven experience, uh, go through a 15 week experience where they really are developing the knowledge, the skills, the experiences, as well as the confidence to secure a strong first job upon graduation and so when i think about you know for our work primarily we're working with underrepresented students mostly first in their families to go to college and for many of them to graduate college with a lot of debt and without a clear pathway to a job to begin to pay down that debt it creates a its own set of crises that need to be managed and so the work that we do is really about helping them navigate their college career in a way that does set them up for a strong first job upon graduation. So there's quite a bit of alignment, I would say, between our work and Beth's. What have you learned as a result of that work about
0: what students might be sort of not missing or maybe need to improve on as they go through that 15-week experience? What, what What are we not doing in the traditional higher education industry that you would suggest we do a better job of to make sure that we make college pay?
3: Sure, I mean, I would say the number one piece that a college or university could do is really raise the awareness around the particular issue. Um, So for many students, uh, typically first gen students, uh, really see that the diploma, with the diploma comes a a contract for a new job. But in reality, You know many of us are working on our jobs or should be working on our jobs the moment you step foot on campus right gpa is incredibly important don't get me wrong but it shouldn't be to the exclusion of other skill building opportunities that students should go after it shouldn't be to the exclusion of students really actively building out their personal and professional networks you know so when we think about some of the statistics around uh, how important networks are. So, you know, your chances of getting a call back from a cold application is one out of 150. It decreases to one in 16 if you have a strong network. These are all um, tools that we can teach students early in their college career to help them navigate it in a way to set them up for a strong first job out of college. That's a great segue, I think,
0: to a question, I think, about um, one of the reasons we are so focused, uh, making sure that the return is high, is because the costs, of course, have increased, right, for, in some cases, for lots of good reasons, and in other cases, maybe for more dubious reasons. But, Beth, because those costs have increased, and in some cases, you know, state support in many states hasn't kept pace, most students find themselves, many students these days, find themselves in the position of having to borrow, so one of the things i think that has we've seen at least anecdotally and and i think even in some of the public opinion data that josh cited is some reluctance some fear around student loan debt um and uh, i would be interested to know you know based on your book what advice would you give to a student who's considering borrowing to afford the cost of attendance
1: i really like to say that we should think of student debt as a tool So tools can be really helpful. The chainsaw can be a really helpful tool. It can also chop your leg off. So the point is it needs to be used correctly, okay? So what I walk through in the book is how to make a decision that you're comfortable with financially, one that pays, one that delivers an ROI. If you have an investment lined up for yourself, based on investing in a, in a degree and then going out into a, a, um, a certain career, and then you borrow through the federal lending program, which has low interest rates, it's significant benefits through their safety net programs, um, then borrowing is not so scary. I mean, we've all gotten very comfortable with the idea that you should borrow to buy a house in this country, right? No one feels like they have failed if they've got a mortgage debt on their balance sheet for 20 or 30 years. But in contrast, we don't feel that way about student debt, but maybe we should. Federal student loans have very low interest rates, lower than any credit you could get in the private marketplace. And if you don't make enough money or don't make a lot of money relative to how much you borrowed, the government's going to forgive it eventually. The government may forgive it all eventually anyway. So um, I think there's a lot of good reasons to keep debt, student debt on your balance sheet as an individual consumer for a much longer time than people seem comfortable with. So I try to say, you know, think of using debt to your advantage. Don't be a victim of debt, but realize what it can do for you and use it strategically to your advantage.
0: Josh, what do you think? Do you agree with that take in general? Well, I'm I'm reluctant to offer any financial advice because as a
2: reporter, that's not really my job. But what I will, I want to point out that student debt is... uh, as I've studied it and and just finished this book on it and and talked with tons of people who got into student debt, one of the things I repeatedly hear is they just really didn't know what the terms were going to be at the outset. And if you think about it, this is a really different product than when you take out a mortgage or take out an auto loan. Um, you're taking out multiple loans throughout a year, and Congress has changed interest rates here and there. You know, I have people who. You know, went to school and, and uh, one loan, the interest rate was this and then maybe the policy changed in Congress and our next loan, it was a higher rate. Tuition increases faster than it than they expected. Um, I was actually talking with an enrollment management consultant um, asking him one time, these are the consultants that a lot of colleges hire to figure out how to how to what's the highest price they can charge students. And I asked him, I said, you are as involved as anyone with, you know, the pricing of higher education. Why is the price going up consistently over time? And he said, because the colleges get you in as a freshman, and you're kind of captive, and they know it's going to be tough to transfer out. So what's, you know, raising 4%, tuition 4% versus 2%. Might as well go for the 4% their sophomore year and then junior year, another 4%. Um, And then by the time you you leave, tuition is far higher than what you initially went in there for. And oh, by the way, interest is accruing on a lot of your loans because they're quote unquote unsubsidized loans. And so what I hear from a lot of people is that they come out of school and they're like, oh my God, I didn't realize that my student debt bill was going to be this much. And then interest was going to be this much. Uh, There's a woman I quote in my book, I profile her and the interest alone, by the time she got out of uh, graduate school, um, the uh, the balance had grown by 20% because of interest. So um, I think that Beth makes a good point that in some ways students are getting a subsidy because the interest rate might be below market rate. But I also think that and Beth, this gets to why you wrote this book, there's a lot there's a lot of confusion and the system is opaque. And people feel like um, they they're shocked when they realize how much they end up having to pay. And then we can get into a
0: whole other discussion about how income based repayment changes the whole equation. But I'll stop there. I'm sure we'll get into that topic in, in just in just a moment, because I think it's important. I, I do want to dig into some of the policy implications of, of all this, um, particularly Beth. Beth, you know, uh, mentioned mentioned loan forgiveness, uh, not only not only the current variety of loan forgiveness, but also the variety that's been in the news. So I do want to talk about that. But but, Josh, your, your point about kind of the, the incentives, let's say, um, and the strategy. Uh, on the part of institutions, you know, I, I would say that generally public institutions are are under a, a different set of constraints than privates. Um, in some cases, with respect to the ability to raise um, to raise tuition, kind of willy nilly. I will ask though. So, so to your point, you know, one of the things that that we've seen here. Uh, and it goes also for out of state publics, but also for some privates. I think there's a behavioral economics concept that they're preying on in some sense where they' they're coming to protect prospective students and offering them a large discount or a scholarship. You know, especially folks who are who don't have a whole lot of experience in this market say, well, they're giving me all this money over here. This is just the in-state rate, right? I'm not getting any, I'm not getting any big benefit from there. How would you help uh, suggest a, to a student and their family to navigate this public, private, discounted or not um so josh we'll start with you maybe first and then beth go to you and then vince i want to hear your perspective as well from from the public side Well, this is where you really
2: have to pay attention to your out-of-pocket. I mean, it took me a while as a reporter to really understand how tuition worked. And so I would talk to schools and they would say, we froze our prices. And when I was like, wait a minute, you froze the sticker price, but what is your net price after that? And um, so, yeah, you need to pay attention to out-of-pocket what you're paying. Um, And a lot of this I've discovered, you know, just has to do with, again, where you're applying. This is the tough stuff that Beth is talking about. And when when you apply and when your app when your application goes through the process and um, and therefore how much leverage do you have to ask for a scholarship or a discount? Um, so, uh, you know, I think ultimately someone told me once this was a company that was trying to you know pro- provide the type of data and inf- information that Beth is talking about for students. You know, it's kind of like the enrollment management consultant on the on the other side for families, and you know, and he was saying the biggest choice that a family can make in trying to get the best deal is matching up with the school of, you know, where you will have leverage. So don't go for reach schools. Like I applied to Northwestern. I didn't get the grades. Thank God I didn't get into Northwestern because I would have ended up playing full price and would have been paying way more. I went to a state flagship university, got a perfectly fine education in state and got a good job. So, you know, Northwestern would have been a reach school and I would have been so happy to you know, have that on my nameplate that I went to this top 10 school, but I would have ended up paying $200,000 and gotten a lot of debt for it, you know?
0: So Beth, Beth, talk to me about this dilemma, let's say. So to Josh's point, right? It it seems to me like if you've got, if you've got positive return on investment, right? You you know, there's, it's all relative in some respects, Josh, Josh has mentioned his own career, right? So Northwestern versus the state flagship, both of them probably pay off right on, some, on the calculus that you do that you lay out in your book. So mm-hmm. talk to me a little bit about how you might how you might help a family or student navigate that kind of discounted tuition that's still a little pretty high versus a, a, a pub, more affordable public institution.
1: Sure. So one of the things I like to say about my book is that it's not prescriptive. It's not going to tell somebody what's the best decision for them, but it's going to give them a framework for thinking about what is the best decision for them. And so I like to say you know in economics we have these things called utility functions it takes a bunch of parameters and it tells us how happy it will make somebody, right? If you have this much pizza and this much beer, that's the old textbook example anyway. So I like to think, figure out your utility function as an individual or as a family and say, what are the things that are important to you and how happy are they going to make you, right? I'm assuming that finances are a big factor because surveys tell us they are for most students. Maybe there's other things, maybe in your personal community, Prestige of institution is so valuable for whatever reason, any reason, um, that you want to weigh that higher. And, and for, for Josh, had he gone to that public, that higher price institution, paid full price, it may have paid off, maybe even more or maybe less than where he is today, of course. And so there's no right decision. I think the, the point is um, to be clear about what are the things that you value. And ensure that the decision that you're making actually matches your values, rather than just being the decision that you kind of come to by being just, you know, riding down the river of um, college excitement and and all that comes with that. The lazy river. No. <laughs> the lazy river of college no, excitement. And
0: then, and then, that's right. So, yeah. Vin, Vince, I'd love to hear your perspective from the students that you work with at at Rutgers Newark and and. You know, what, what do you have a sense generally of what their what set of choices they're thinking about and considering and both both their choice of institution, but then also their choice of career and major?
3: Sure. Um, so bringing the lens or the perspective of a student who may be first in his family to go to college um, or from an underrepresented background, I, I would say my my sort of biggest piece of advice would be to not be afraid to ask questions. Mm-hmm and not be afraid to expose the package that you have received to a trusted person, right? So it doesn't necessarily have to be with the university, but really, I often, I mean, the way I kind of think about it is, is like when you start to have discussions around salary, you actually learn more about, uh, you know, what's possible for you in terms of your income. And I think of it the same way when you receive a financial aid package, Take that financial aid package, share it, show it with someone. Um, Do not be afraid. I mean, this is something that, um, this level of disclosure is just really important. It'll also allow you to figure out what are the types of questions that you can go back with, right? to have either a discussion or potentially a negotiation around it. And so I think for many of the students that we work with, it's really about the education of, this is what your package is, Here are the questions that I think you should consider asking. um, But first, helping them get over that hurdle of saying that this, this is all okay, right? Like to disclose this information, there isn't anything that you should necessarily feel ashamed about. If anything, we could potentially help you identify additional funding or the questions that can unlock additional funding for you. So I think that's, you know, really important advice, especially for
0: somebody, you know, to Josh's point that he made earlier about you have to learn, you actually have to learn a lot, even as a higher ed reporter, to understand how college is priced. Uh, and for whom, um, uh, and how that price can be different depending on the person. But let's talk also quickly about the the major discussion, right? Because I know that's as Beth as Beth pointed out earlier on. That's one of the main takeaways of her book is that 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 the variation across institutions is not as high as the variation across majors. So, Vince, I want to start with you and 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 ask you know, when you, the the group of students that you work, that that engage in your 15-week experience, do you see, are there sort of modal categories of majors that you work with in particular uh, that stand out to you
3: as as being particularly hungry for what Braven offers? Um, No, so I would say we work across all majors um, for students, but we've done quite a bit of research looking at the majors that um, are really challenging in terms of employment and help students figure out the ways in which they can discuss their experiences that would allow them to secure a job as a result of their major. But when we start to look at majors such as um, criminal justice or psychology or biology, where you, if you're psychology and you're not going to continue on into, um, you know, becoming a psychiatrist or a clinician or biology, you may not be going off to med school. How, How do we help them pivot in that moment to really be able to consider um, the ways that they can speak about their experiences that can help unlock opportunities for them. So what, where we um, really see, uh, well, the value that we bring is, well, it, it's a strong value proposition across all majors, but it's especially helpful to those majors where the next step is not evident in terms of your career path if you're not continuing on to graduate school or additional schooling after the fact. Additionally, the role of the minor helps, at least in our research, right? So you could be a criminal justice major, but with a minor in um, in economics, that actually increases your chances, your outcomes of securing a strong first job. So really helping students understand. We don't do counseling on the front end. Students typically who join us are have already selected their major. Um, but we do help them really start to think about if you haven't selected your minor, here are minors that complement this particular major really well in terms mm. of employability.
0: Beth, I know you've done a lot of thinking about majors and the, and the payoff to different majors. I do think you know one of the things that that, that uh, Vince's work and in particular Vince's work in, in, a, in sort of that that New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, highly heavily dense, growing, uh, just an industri- industrial powerhouse right lots of jobs lots of pe- lots of people lots of jobs you know how do how does sort of location of where students wind up uh affect their return right because there's certain, there's obviously what you study but if what you study has jobs somewhere other than where you need to live or plan to live right that's that's going to be a challenge for you so talk a little bit about location and, and in particular you know one of the things that that we, uh, just to tack on kind of a real world example, right? One of the things that we think a lot about is the footprint of our universities. We've got 16 public four-year universities. They're all over the state, rural, urban, right? So, so how do we think about yeah. in particular those rural universities that serve a lot of students from the surrounding counties, right? And making sure that, that those students have that economic opportunity without having to necessarily uh, all concentrate in those urban centers, right? And, and, and further kind of exacerbate some geographic uh, inequality.
1: Yeah, so one of the things I'm really excited about um, with some innovative models of education is that there is a, a more intermingling of higher ed institutions and employers and Braven is actually involved in this work. And I think a big part of maybe why they're successful, what they're doing is making sure that during this course experience that their students are involved in they are uh, interacting directly with employers which enables them to have relationships and basically build that professional network so i think when it comes to how do we ensure you know as an institution that our graduates are going on to be successful it's got to be that engagement and that's a geographic question too you know so we sometimes think that everybody picks up and after high school graduation and moves across the country to go to college the reality is that most people go to college right near home and they're going to work and stay right near home, too. And so the relationships that institutions can build with local employers will have huge returns for um, their their students. and. And I think that model has been proven successful in places like coding boot camps, which are kind of like really new and exciting. And I think it's the reason they're working, right? They're kind of shaking up education. Um, But but all that they've really done is just really made that tight connection between education and employment. And that's something I think traditional education could learn from and and what Braven is really doing through their model.
0: Mm -hmm. Vince, tell us about how you build those relationships. And then Josh, I want to get your take on some of these issues as well.
3: Sure. I mean, I think for us, uh, working with the employer community is essential for the effectiveness of our program. And so what we do is we partner with the employer community to give them volunteer engagement opportunities for their employees who really uh, desire to give back and make a contribution. Uh, maybe they themselves share the same background as our fellows, or maybe they don't, but they have a desire to give back. It is through that engagement that our fellows begin to develop their own professional networks. Uh, So our volunteers who serve as either leadership coaches or professional mentors begin to open up their networks to our fellows, help them uh, build out their own, and then ultimately cultivate those networks over time. And so what we have seen in our research, um, and we talked a little bit about majors that are a little bit tricky, um, not only has a, a strong minor um, supported a student with a with a, a major that in the job market is not resulting in uh, a strong first job, minors can help with that, but also professional mentors. Our professional mentoring program for those at risk majors increase their employment, by. Right? Two times uh, compared to the average uh, student with the similar major. Why? Because that professional mentor has developed a strong relationship with this student over the course of fifteen weeks. Understands the student's objectives and then begins to think about who are the folks that I should be introducing this individual to to help them start to build out their network and then ultimately. Uh, open up the door to a job opportunity.
0: So Josh, I want to pivot now to talk a little bit about policy and the policy implications of some of what we've discussed. So Beth talked about this early on in, in, in her response to the question about borrowing. So we've got uh, federal loan programs, uh, you know, sort of below market interest rates. Uh, we've got what Beth described as a safety net, right, um, which is designed to catch those borrowers who may um, who may not be well served or might experience some of that downside risk. Uh, is all Is that all working?
2: Yes and no. Um, so we have seen tuition inflation slow in recent years. For a while, it was actually below inflation, which was shocking. It was the first time ever. Mm-hmm. Now it's picked back up. But point being is that I think people have become more price sensitive. Um, and I think colleges have had to respond, um, you know, by uh, at least some schools have had to respond by being more sensitive in how they raise prices. Um, but, you know, I the the one of the most important features, and I say important, I say, I don't mean like uh, I'm advocating for this, but one of the essential features of our student loan system is that it maximizes choice. In other words, you know, people like Beth and Vince and whoever can, you know, try to give families the best information they can um, and make sure they're empowered and they're informed. But ultimately, uh, the, the loan program, gives people the option to spend a lot of money if they want to, if they want to. Um, and so for example, one school in my that I profile in my book, the University of Alabama, it's a state school. Most of their students are from out of state. And this, the school has I laid this out in, in my book, they, they have embarked on a strategy, of trying to lure as many families as possible um, you know by offering the fancy gyms and you know um, places to eat and dorms and it's worked Um, but it's also very expensive Um, and I've talked with students who went there who are fifty thousand over a hundred thousand dollars in debt between them and their parents um, and they had cheaper options, um, and they were they were aware that they had cheaper options, but they still chose the fancy option. Um, and so, uh, you know, President Biden is talking about uh, possibly forgiving a little bit of debt, um, possibly making uh, he wants to make two year college uh, free for everyone, possibly making four year college free for people making under one twenty five. But he's not talking about reigning in the loan program um, and 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 reducing choice with that loan program. And so. I do question, um, ultimately, this is why I think people like Beth and Vince can have more of an influence in this process because I don't know if there's a political stomach for Washington to change and rein in the loan program, but I do think that there is a bigger opportunity for more information and for families just to become more informed. And I think, Beth, you said this, and and like less romantic about going to Northwestern.
0: So Beth, I do want to sort of, Push a little bit on on the comment you made earlier, right? Which it's always struck me that that uh, you know a safety net, a safety net can quickly turn from from what's what it's intended to be to something that uh, sophisticated actors exploit, right, to their benefit. And so, how how do we avoid that? Because I think some of what Josh is pointing out is is the is this notion that that you can create a safety net with the best of intentions, right? And but that 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 we've seen i think in some some cases right some 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 behaviors that are 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 i would ex- i would say as exploiting some of those some of that safety net to the benefit of of private sophisticated actors how do we how do we get around that
1: well <laughs> so there's two sides of this right so the book basically says Hey, this program's a little bit imperfect. Here's how you exploit it. And now I put on my policy hat and say, okay, here's how we fix the program so that my readers can no longer exploit it. Uh, That is my priority, I will say. I'm always going to put the public interest above the interest of my readers. But there are a lot of problems with income driven repayment, is the other name for this safety net, right? It basically means. As a borrower, I can pay back on a monthly basis a proportion based on my income. If I have low income, I'll have either a low or even a zero payment. And if I continue to make my loan payments for 10 or 20 years, depending on whether I work in public service or for a private company, I'll have the remainder of my loans forgiven. Great in theory, in practice, income driven repayment is a set of overlapping mishmash of programs that students have a really hard time navigating. And there are concerns that they are being effectively administered, which is not surprising given their complexity. Um, And so we need to fix that for sure. That's kind of like the basic. And then there's the question of are the people who are benefiting really deserving of the benefits? Some research from Jason Delisle through AEI actually showed that a lot of the benefits from IDR are accruing to very or relatively high income borrowers who borrow a lot to go to graduate or professional school. And so these may not be the people that we really want to target federal tax dollars towards helping out. And I think there's a case to be made that we want to think about reforming the safe, the safety net so that people who borrow more have to pay longer have to pay more, people can afford it, will pay. And then maybe even increasing the generosity at the low end so that if you're a very low income borrower, somebody who just didn't get that income bump that's supposed to come from college, maybe you didn't graduate or your school is a lemon, um, you know, we can we can bail you out. Um, I think there's definitely a case to be made for that. Uh, the The plan as it was designed uh, was not particularly savvy in avoiding those kind of um, ex exploitative behaviors.
0: You make a good point, which is folk, folks need to know about that these protections are out there because there are people who are really hurting, right? And they're and they're having trouble um, with this. At the same time, I think it, the policy wonk uh, uh, community has 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 come to many of the same conclusions that you just laid out, Beth. About we need to be careful um, about about designing that effectively. So I yeah, want to take just that-
1: add to that. There's a shocking yeah. amount of agreement <laughs> in, across yeah. the aisle, even on what needs to be done amongst the wonks. We kind of all think the same thing. But the political messaging is something completely different, <laughs> which is hard to engage yeah. sometimes.
0: Well, besides, please buy the book because it is terrific. And I will say it so you don't have to. Final thoughts from you, Beth.
1: Be calculating, right? We we know how to be calculating in other areas our managing our investment portfolios, buying houses. It's time to take that t- that person that's inside and ready to run the spreadsheets and do the data and apply to IRA. <laughs>